Tonight, for the first time, we have the story of the rescue of Jessica Buchanan. It is the tale of a secret mission by SEAL Team 6 that few people have heard about until now. On a January night in 2012, members of SEAL Team 6 jumped from a plane into the skies of Somalia. Jessica Buchanan was being held hostage, and the SEALs were descending just in time. Buchanan was a humanitarian aid worker who had come to help children in one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Hers was an ordeal that ended in a flash of violence, but had begun 93 days earlier when her car was stopped by bandits in a place she calls hell. I'd become so ill that I couldn't stand up, I couldn't walk, so I was in so much pain. And I said, I think I have a kidney infection. And I started to cry and I said, I think I'm afraid I'm going to die out here. When that call was received here in Nairobi, it set off a chain of events that led all the way to the Oval Office. The FBI and the military consulted doctors who said that if Jessica had a kidney infection, she might have just two weeks to live. That was transmitted to the president, who was also informed that in just a few days, there would be a new moon, perfect darkness for a SEAL Team rescue. Jessica Buchanan had chosen a star in the Somali sky to represent her mother, who had passed away a year before. She spoke to it every night, and with no moon, it was especially bright on January 25th. What did you say that night? Please tell God that I need some help. We need to get out of here. You couldn't have known that that prayer would be answered that night. I had no idea. She was on a mat trying to sleep when she heard a faint scratching noise. One of the bandits she nicknamed Helper heard it too. And I see this look of just sheer terror on Helper's face. And then all of a sudden, it's just this eruption of gunfire. And I think, okay, well, this is it. This really is truly the end. And I cover up with my blanket again, and I just start saying, oh God, oh God, oh God. And I just remember thinking, or maybe I'm saying out loud, like, I cannot survive this. She thought she was being taken by a rival group, maybe Al-Shabaab, Islamic extremists who would surely kill her. Then I hear my name, but it's not a Somali accent, it's an American accent. And I can't compute, like I can't understand that somebody with an American accent knows my name. And they say, Jessica, we're with the American military. We're here to take you home. And pull the blanket down from my face and all I see is black, black masks, black sky. And all I can say over and over is you're American. You're American. I don't, I, I don't understand you're Americans. Thinking, how did you get here? And I, I'm still alive. One of them picks me up and starts running. He runs for several minutes and, and puts me down on the ground. And then they identify themselves and that they knew I was very sick. And 
they have medicine, they have water, they have food, and they've come to, to take me home. At one point, I think they thought they heard something, I don't know, this group of men who's risked their life for me already asks me to lie down on the ground because they're concerned that there might be somewhere, someone out there and then they make a circle around me and then they lie down on top of me to protect me. And we lay like that until the helicopters come in. When all of those seals laid down on top of you, you were the most important thing in the world to them. It's really hard to comprehend. They were going to take a bullet for you. Mm -hmm. And they're so kind, and they're so gentle, and they are trying to assist me to get to the helicopter. But I think I've been out here for months. I can run to this helicopter myself, and so I just break away, and I just take off running through the scrub, through the bush, and I throw myself onto that helicopter and push myself up against the wall and I don't start breathing until we actually lift up off the ground. And they hand me an American flag that's folded. What did you think of that? I just started to cry. At that point in time, I have never in my life been so proud and so very happy to be an American. podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. i have a very special guest on with me for this podcast uh the founder of the operator foundation and former u.s navy seal ron mars how's it going brother hey johnny thank you man for having me on here yeah i appreciate you coming on um you just sort of very recently uh stepped out of the shadow so to speak and um you have a foundation and a company that you're running uh, you know we'll, we'll talk about all that but I would like to sort of go back to the beginning a little bit. So you served for 27 years in the U.S. Navy. Uh, obviously, that's a long time. Uh, was all of that on the SEAL teams? No, so it wasn't. So so essentially, so I listed at age uh, uh, 17. Uh, you know, I was one of those guys. My my uh, father had uh, signed the release to... Uh, uh, get me into uh, get me into the military, which was which turns out to be a fantastic decision that he made. So I I, I thank him for that every every time I speak with him. But I spent uh, about four years as a uh, as a regular Navy guy as an electronics technician. You know, kind of hearing about the you know snippets about the SEAL teams here and there. You know, you it's, you, you hear about the urban legend when you're when you're new in the Navy and you're you know, these mythical guys that exist somewhere and they, they leave on submarines and they don't come back with them. And, and then obviously the, you know, this is back in like 1989. So the, you know, the, the Navy SEALs movie comes out and here I am, uh, you know, 18 years old and I, I go see that thing and, and it's like, you know, you're like, man, is this, is this, is this reality? Like, do these guys exist? Like you just, you, you, you know, this is, this is book stuff to me back then. Yeah. I was a teenager and, uh, and so then I go to, uh, I end up in Norfolk on a ship and essentially I, I was outside one day and I was, 
you know, the ship that I was on was responsible for working with uh, submarines in uh, Norfolk. And, and here come these guys walking down the pier and they've, they're wearing, uh, you know, woodland, uh, woodland BDUs and no hats on and their, 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 you know, their pants weren't tucked in and they were, so they were, there's like six or eight of them and they're carrying these black bags and, and all this equipment down to one of the submarines. And I asked one of the guys, uh, one of the more senior, you know, Navy guys there, like, Hey, who, who were those, who are those cats over there? And he says, Oh, those are the seals that are going out on one of the subs and they're, you know, I don't know what they do. I just know that they take a lot of stuff with them and then the sub comes back and they're not on the sub anymore. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and so I was like, man, that's, I got to get off this ship. I got to get out of this job. Uh, so that was it. That was the, the impetus for it. I, I, I went to the admin department, got the uh, instructions on how to do it. And, and away I went. And at the time that you joined, was it possible to go straight to buds from the street or did you have to serve time in the Navy first? No. So, yeah. So at that time, so now there's this, there's what's called the, uh, the seal operator, MOS, if you will, the, the rating assignment where you can join, you can go straight into the Navy uh, to be in what they call the, it's called the uh, dive fair program and go to be a SEAL or in explosive orders disposal or, or a, a Navy diver. But back then, you know, when I did it, that wasn't available. So you had to, you know, the rating that I had picked, the electronics technician rating that I had picked, um, I couldn't go straight into it because I had accepted a a longer school, you know, after the initial electronics training that I, that I'd had. So because I accepted this longer school, I couldn't then also, you know, do any kind of seal training thing. But the reality of it is, I don't think if I had done it at age 17, you know, maybe it wouldn't have worked out for me, you know, but when I did it at age 22, I was ready. I had some additional perspective. I knew, uh, you know, the, the regular Navy life, I knew what it was I didn't want to do. And, and I really knew what I wanted to do. And, it, and that, that helped push me through it. I've heard uh, from guys before that the Navy does a good job of prepping people to go to BUDS, whereas in the Army, some guys, or at least at the time that they were in a couple of years ago, they will arrive at basic in extremely good shape, knowing that they wanted to go into special operations, whether that's the Ranger Regiment or Special Forces. And um, through BASIC, they would lose some of their fitness um, capability yeah. as, just because they're not, you know, doing the same type of stuff. Um, was it, uh, did they prep you for BUDS well or? No, well, so fortunately, uh, there was a guy in the division that I was assigned to on the ship as a as an E4 electronics guy, um, and this gentleman was a uh, a Navy diver assigned to one of the submarines. So, so he he had that experience. He was he knew what I wanted to do. He understood what I wanted to do, and I think he appreciated the reasons why I wanted to do it. So, I was fortunate in getting his support early on, and through him, I actually was able to leave the, sh leave the ship that I was on and go TDY to the Naval Amphibious Base, Little Creek in Virginia, where I was assigned as basically a, a Bud's wannabe guy to the Naval Special Warfare Center over there. And that enabled me to, to PT with, with some of the guys and 
um, kind of be immersed in the environment for about six months before I went to Buds. And without nice. having d- done that, then I would have been, I would have definitely have fallen short because in that six months I was able to, I was able to, you know, swim a lot. I was able to PT. I was able to do the obstacle course. I was able to practice the drown proofing tests, the, the 50 meter underwater swim, you know, all these things that are, that are big hurdles for guys when they get out there. I'd already done them. So it was, you know, I'm thankful to this day that, uh, uh, that gentleman on the ship enabled me to do it, uh, in, in such great fashion. It was, it was fantastic. So going through buds, like some, a lot of guys will be in really good shape and they'll have the right mindset. Uh, but throughout the duration of buds, they'll get injured, a stress fracture, or maybe in their foot or something like that. Um, is that something you've ever dealt with or were you able to go straight through? So the first, the uh, first class I was in, I, I, I was in, uh, I started with class 194 and, and I bout, I was training like a madman going into it, um, doing a lot of runs. So about the, within one week of starting one week to 10 days, uh, I remember running on the beach in, in Coronado, uh, in first phase and I get this like twinge in my leg and I'm like, Oh Lord, like what the hell was that? Um, and then you know, the, basically over the next like three or four days, it gets worse and worse. And now I'm like limping. And one of the instructors comes up to me and he's like, what's, what's the deal with your leg? And I said, yeah, I, I have no idea. Um, so they sent me to medical and I'm like, you know, here I am, you know, good Lord. Like I'm going to medical. I'm like, like, you know, that's like the, the curse, like you're done, you know, you're you're like, you're not never going to make it. Right. So I go to medical and they, they x-ray my leg and the doctor says, Hey, yeah, guess what? You've got a stress fracture in your, mm. in your lower leg. And I just was, you know, my world was just crushed. I just couldn't believe it. So fortunately, again, just like the guy on the ship that that helped me out, that you, you just, you know, in order to make it through training, I tell guys, you, yes, you've got to be good. you got to be in good shape. But, man, you've got to be lucky. you got to be lucky to throughout a career as a as a you know any any type of these special operations units to go through unscathed especially when you're talking like you know 10 20 plus years so so they pulled me out i was on crutches you know i was like you, you know taking up uh, taking calcium supplements i I, mm. I stayed off of it i and then so they gave me about six weeks or something like that to to stay off the leg to make sure it was healed and then they, they did a uh, review board and they, they brought me in. They're like, all right, all right, Mars, here's what's, here's what's going to happen. You, there's a, there's this class that's open, whatever. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah, of course, absolutely. I want that class. So they put me in 196 and then I went straight through with 196. So that was, that was refreshing, obviously to get in there and, you know, go start to finish with all the, the guys that started that class. So obviously, you know, you're in shape, you've been training for months, you get there, you get hurt, staying off of it for six weeks, obviously you're going to lose some of your, um, some of your fitness level is going to drop. That's uh, right. Yeah. Do you, is there any period of allowing you to sort of get back into it or do you just jump right into it? No. Cause you know, I mean, the thing is, you know how it is when you're, when you're that age, when you're 22, like you're, but you basically think you're invincible anyway. Right. So, so I stayed off of it knowing all 
full well and good that when I started back with class 196, it was, you know, I'm, it's going to probably, I'm going to have to pay the man for a little bit, but, but I'd rather pay the man by, you know, having some very miserable runs than pay the man by not being in the, at the, in the training. So I said, Hey, I'll give this up. Uh, I'll be happy to put up with some, uh, some extra fatigue and, uh, some goon squad issues maybe or something like that, but, but I'm staying in training. Like you're, you're not, you're not kicking me out of here. So, and, and then it, obviously everything, everything worked out, you know, completely fine. It was, you know, it was, uh, just such a great experience to be with the same group of guys in 196. I think there were, if I, I'd have to check with a couple of the guys to make sure my numbers are accurate, but I think there were like 138 guys that started in 196 and, 19, 19 people graduated and out of the 19, I think around 12 of us started with the class, something like that. So as you can see, the attrition is pretty, was, was pretty severe. This is in 90, 1994. Right. And another thing that I think most people, it's probably something they don't think about is guys will make it through first First phase is um, is how weak in the second phase. So for me, it was in the first. Now it's it's still in first phase, but it's not in this. It's not the same week now as it was when I went through. But it's still in first phase. So guys will go through complete the entire first phase. How weak is obviously extremely difficult to pass. Uh, people pass that, but even like you may think, oh, how weak is is like something crazy to make it through. Guys will make it through that and still fail out in the next couple of phases, right? Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. Because you just because you just don't, you know. The thing is, is when you're going through it, you know. I remember seeing these guys, like you know, when I'm when I just show up there, you see these guys wearing what we called at the time green t-shirt. So when I showed up there, they wear uh, the Woodland uh, BDUs now out in buds. But when I checked in we were wearing the old uh, service greens. You know, it was an all green uniform with a white name tape on it and a green t-shirt. So the guys that had the green t-shirts, now they're brown. Those were the guys that made it through Hell Week. And you see these guys and you're like, you know, you see this class of, of 130 plus guys with white t-shirts marching back and forth to the chow hall or, or going on PT events. Um, and they've all got white t-shirts and freshly shaved heads because they're they're they just started first phase right but now you see this class like post hell week like the class that's in dive phase walking around with blue helmets on and they've got like you know 18 guys walking together uh and they just look like they're they're harder they look like they've experienced something together that you haven't right um and it's and then after you go through it you understand it you say okay, I, I get it now because now I'm on the other side of it. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right, John. The, uh, uh, there's other obstacles that guys have to get through. You've got to be a consistent top performer. You've got to continue to be lucky. And, and if those things are on your side, then yeah, you're, you're not going to make it. I, I tell folks all the time, but there's a lot of people out there who have been through a portion of buds or you know a, you know portions of this portions portions of that but there's but there's not a lot of guys out there who have you know who have done you know been through buds been through a, 
uh, been assigned to SEAL teams, and then spent you know a careers worth of time at you know special organizations as well. So you you make it through buds, and then you get assigned to your team. Um, can you talk about which team you went to and how long you're there? Yep, yep. I went to uh, I went to SEAL Team Two uh, at the time, which was in uh, it still is in Virginia. So it was you know one of the oldest SEAL teams. You get SEAL Team One in San Diego, SEAL Team Two in Virginia Beach. You know, Two was commissioned in. In 1962, this is you know back when obviously you're talking uh, uh, you know uh, Vietnam War uh, coming up. So I was very happy to go to that team because it was one, it was one of, the, one of the oldest teams and a lot of history. They were responsible for the European theater. You know, so it was just exciting times for me because that's that's what I wanted to do. And then I and so I leave uh, Buds and at the time. You go to jump school. Now they do the jump school as part of some of the, like after Bud's training out in California. But at this time, at this, you know, 90, this would have been early 95, I had to go to Fort Benning and get my first taste of uh, the uh, U.S. Army. And that was in the form of uh, a jump school at Fort Benning. After Fort Benning, then uh, went to the, went to SEAL Team 2, did some more advanced training, was assigned to a SEAL platoon deployed a couple of times the first time this is all pre 9-11 so you know by comparison there wasn't a lot of stuff going on you know a lot of things we were doing is working with you know foreign units and uh training events honing skills shooting diving jumping you know these kind of things to, to stay current and then 97 98 bosnia conflict was going on over there then i i was you know fortunate at that time uh as a member of the team to deploy and spend a number of months in in sarajevo and tuzla and and, uh, doing things over there and that was kind of my first exposure to you know being deployed in a what i'd call a dangerous environment i guess right that was pretty bad over there for a couple of years um you had bosnia albania i mean not albania um i'm sorry Kosovo. Um, yeah, you know, that you, you know, the the uh, the ethnic issues over there that yeah. um, you know with the Bosnians and you know the Serbs and all these things. Uh, it was tough. You know, when you go over there and you you know you you, you come from the United States where you know at, at any given day in the United States someone's going to complain about how bad they have it here. You know, which is which is frustrating to us because we've seen the other side. You know, then you go to a place like Bosnia and you see, you know, these these little kids standing outside of a house that's that's got a massive hole in it because it was hit with an artillery shell. And and it's you know, it's, it's cloudy, it's cold. There's a light rain drizzle. You know, the you know, everyone's bundled up. There's it's just a it's just one of those things that makes you. Not only does it make you feel for the locals who are experiencing this, but it makes you very much appreciate what it is you have when you have it. Right. You're absolutely right. People complain about things. Um, and then online, I guess people who are kind of aware of, of this, they'll like, ha- if they're complaining about something, they'll hashtag first world problems and then complain about it. Um, yeah. And that's really the difference. Uh, you know, most people who have a roof over their head, 
um, have a, a bed to sleep in and have food on the table, you know, you have more than like 70% of the world or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, and we got to, I think just as a whole in the U S and other developed countries, you got to just do a, a better job of appreciating that. Yeah. It makes it, you know, it's just, it's those, it's those type of experiences that it really, uh, uh, it makes you appreciate, um, that, that, you know, the obviously the flag on your, on your shoulder. Right. Um, so, and then you, and then you have to remember that when you're out there and you're, you're visible you're the you know to these people you know these these uh whatever country you're in these these civilians you know you know men women children you know they look at you as being this you know this again this the the mythical the the figure you know the here's the american in front of me the the place where we wish we could go and so you have to remember that you got to remember that you know no matter where you are you are absolutely an ambassador for this country and that's that's a that's a lot of weight for for folks to carry. But, you know, but you have to carry, you know, we owe it to uh, everybody else to do it. And, and it's, it's those experiences that that I had at Team 2 uh, early on, you know, from 95 to 2000 that, you know, helped hone, uh, you know, those they help hone who it is you're going to be when you when you get the opportunity to be in a, in a leadership position. So after after your time at SEAL Team Two, uh, you then went on to selection for special missions, and then you spent the duration of your career as an operator at special missions, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so two thousand, I, I, you know, I looked at the next. I, you know, so guy, what happened? What happens is in that environment is I here I am at Team Two, and there's guys that are they're leaving, right? They're like, okay, you know. Uh, John Doe's got five, six years at the at Team Two, and all, and all of a sudden he gets orders and and he packs his stuff and he leaves. And you know, here I am. I was an E five at the time, and I'm like, okay, where where the heck did John Doe go? You know, where's 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 he going to? Oh, he you know he's going to this other place that uh, you know that you know you know as you know back then guys used to go, Shh, you know, don't don't say anything. He's going to this other 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 special place, and uh. And of course, it doesn't take you long. Where you, where you then you say to yourself, "Well, I want to go there too." You know, like all these great guys are going there. Like, well, I, that's where I want to go. So, so that's what happened. So I screened for the for the counterterrorism section. It was accepted. Went through that selection program. Uh, yet again, another selection program in uh, two thousand. And then I spent the, you know, very fortunate to spend the next 15 years there and, uh, you know, stayed deployed on cycle with the counterterrorism organization for about a decade. So I was able to, I guess, I guess I, about 14 deployments is what I ended up doing between Afghanistan, Iraq, and some other places. So we were speaking about this before we started recording where um, we mentioned uh, guys that you know who've been on the podcast before, and there were there were guys that had happened to get into special missions and were wounded early on, and uh, you know one of the very f- uh, beginning of their deployments. And due to those wounds they received on the battlefield, it really restricted them and sort of led to eventually them getting out of the service 
or not being able to deploy anymore. Whereas in your case, you deployed 14 times all with uh, special missions. Uh, so obviously those are very dangerous deployments. And um, one of the things you said was you have to be good, but a lot of it is also luck. Um, and I, I've, I've known of situations where uh, there was a ranger who was killed a couple of years ago. His name is Christopher Domaje. And mm -hmm. at the time, he was the most deployed ranger, I think, in, in the history of the regiment. Uh, I, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact year he was killed. Maybe it was 2011 or maybe 2014. I, I don't remember. But he, but by the time he was killed, he was in a position where he wasn't going out anymore. He was just sort of staying in the base. Yep. And um, someone got hurt. So he volunteered to take their spot on this operation and... You know, they stepped off the bird and him and a, there was a younger, a young guy who was maybe 22 or something like that. I think he was like a private. And the second the this private stepped off the aircraft, he was shot and killed instantly. Doma J ended up getting killed in that same engagement. But it, it's just sort of crazy to see how guys like yourself, you can do, you know, 14 rotations and come out OK. And then some people get killed on the very first. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, you know, that's one of the things as I became more senior and the more, the more objectives that I'd been on, the more operations that I've been on over the years, uh, it, it changes your perspective and it, and, and what you end up having to do in a leadership position is, is you, you have to communicate that to guys that are, that are coming in, you know, later than, than you did. And, and they don't have as much operational experience as you do. And they're, you know, these guys are hungry, right? They want to, they want to get after it. They want to deploy and get on the helicopters and they want to do all the stuff that, that I was doing. And you gotta, you gotta temper that. You gotta be able to communicate with guys like, you know, like, Hey, I, you know, I understand, I, I understand your point. I want to get after it too, but we got to be patient. And we, we, and if we go too fast or if we go unprepared, you know, then you, you got to be careful what you wish for because the enemies only got to be, they only got to be lucky one time. That's it. You know, so they, you know, they, they crack off a bunch of rounds in your direction. Only one of those has, has got to impact you to either cause a lot of damage or, or take you off this planet. So that's a, uh, that's a much different perspective when you, when you've done hundreds of operations and you realize that, Hey, it's a fantastic job and it's a fantastic career and i loved every second of it and the guys are amazing you know but at the same time it comes with great risk and sometimes when things occur they they're very bad and it's a disaster and and things will never be the same so in situations where you receive a shrapnel wound and it stays inside it comes out eventually right I mean, that's what they, yeah, my, my father was, uh, uh, he was in the back of a, uh, what he calls a deuce and a half, uh, in the army in, in Vietnam. And, uh, he did three or four years in the army. Um, and somebody threw a grenade in the back of it, uh, when he was in the back of it. So when all the people were like filing out, he got, anyway, he got blown up by a grenade in Vietnam. So he's got a bunch of shrapnel that comes out of him because it's tiny little pieces and i think it's it's more it's not as deep as the one in my arm but the one in my arm is kind of like up against the bone so it's I'm, i'd be surprised if that works its way all the way out 
Yeah, I've known guys who had uh, been in like IED blasts and and have gotten hit from shrapnel from grenades and stuff like that. And years later, it it ended up coming out of them. Like uh, I, I know even one guy I know who he had like a, I think he had a piece of shrapnel in his face. Yep. Um, and it's it's pretty painful from what I've been told anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, my my dad has got you know, pieces of the stuff that's, that's come out of him over the years, which is, um, and, and now I'm, and now I've got, you know, similar, similar stuff. I guess it's kind of, it's entertaining in that sense. So Bud's is widely considered to be one of the hardest, if not the hardest selection course for special operations in the world. Um, you know, going into special missions, it's a selection course where even SEALs fail at a very high rate. Um, what makes both courses difficult, and if you can talk about what makes them different? Yeah, sure, uh, John. Yeah, that's fairly fairly straightforward there, I suppose. The, so the initial training, you know, you're talking about buds training. You're, you, you've got a lot of guys that you need. You you know, you've got a, a finite period of time, six seven months that you need to. You've got to whittle these guys down and, and make sure that you're left with a essentially a population that wants to be there and is physically capable and it's not going to quit. Right. But that screening process that they do at buds is not a, it, it doesn't, it's not really long enough where you can, you can dive into, okay, what are the reasons that the guy wants to do it? Right. So now you, you spend five years at a, at a SEAL team after that, and then you say you want to go to the counterterrorism organization. So now you've got to, you you get basically investigated as to why it is you want to do it. Okay. You, you've proven that you can do it, but why do you want to do it? You know, why do you, why do you want to come to the, the best organization? Why do you want to get into counterterrorism? You know, the, the answer for that is not because you, because you want to, you know, because you want to shoot people essentially, which, which some guys would sometimes say when I was involved in the screening, that's not the correct answer. You know, the correct answer is a, a, a different reason. It's something that's more in more insightful than that. But if you want to, if you're the type of person that you just want to, you just want to chase it, you're just chasing down the, you know, the combat experience. You're just trying to, you know, get yourself in a position where you can either either be fired upon or or fire. Uh, then that's you're not the person for that organization. Yeah, I've heard guys, um, particularly from the Army Special Missions Unit, talk about selection and and how there are guys who are super fit when they get there and they pass all the physical stuff but they fail when it comes to like the psyche vows and stuff like that. And basically, and then I think there was one guy who was a, one of the, eventually was a cadre on the selection. And what he did say was, is that they're looking for uh, the right guy. And that's usually who they end up selecting. That's right. Yeah. And, he, and even that's not a perfect science. I mean, you see, so you, right. you invest all this money in it. Um, and we do, uh, into, into, you know, behavioral scientists, um, you know, background checks and, uh, standardized testing and assessments that you do. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it, it's not a perfect system either. So, 
you're, what you're doing is you're trying to, you're not so much trying to figure out the guys that you want. You're trying to ID the guys you don't want. You know, that's what you're, that's what you really want because that's, that's the risk, you know? So if you get somebody in that's in it for the wrong reasons, then now you're talking about a massive risk exposure to not only the organization, but also the joint organization, you know, the, the, the U S military as a whole, the U S government. I mean, there's so many things that could, that one individual can do to ruin the reputation of many. And, and we try as what as hard as we can to, to stop that from occurring. Right. And I know over the last, you know, I mean, we've been at war for 19, I'm sorry, 20 years now, 19, 20 years now. Um, and that's a lot of, a lot of deploying, and I think the majority of that deployment uh, that's taking place is from a very small percentage of the military. So yeah, these are the sure. same groups of men and women just constantly deploying. And yep. um, in many ways, that has an, a, a negative effect long term because people get burned out. Um, it's very stressful on the families and stuff like that. Um, but over the years, there's been incidents of, you know, people perhaps doing things that they shouldn't on a battlefield and that just sort of cast a negative um, shadow on the rest of the organization. I've seen it recently with the Eddie Gallagher situation. Uh, I'm not yeah. saying that he's, you know, he's such a bad guy or anything, but right. um, e even if it's just a perception that he's a bad guy, you know, through the media, it just casts a negative shadow on, on the rest of the SEAL teams. Yeah, it, it's, of course it does. It's, and it's very easy because when you're, um, you know, as much as everyone will say that they love to see people successful, they also love to, they love to see people who are the successful folks not be successful. Right. Uh, you know, it's like they're, it's like they're waiting for, it. you know, it's like Tom Brady. They're waiting for him to lose a game. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden everyone's happy. It's crazy, you know, and, right. and uh, so that, but that's the reality. That's the dynamic. And, and that's why you can't, I would tell guys like, don't give it to them, you know, if you if you make a wrong decision, you're just giving people the ammunition. You know, you're giving them a chink in the armor. Don't do it. You know, like it's not you're going to ruin it for everybody else, and it's going to take years to recover from it. Um, you know, speaking to the uh, you know the Eddie Gallagher stuff, it's exactly it. You don't want to see that stuff for the news. You know, I don't want friends of mine asking me. You know, you know, family members asking me. So, what do you think about the? Gallagher situation and I'm and I'm like I, I I can't believe that it's come to this that like all of all of my efforts you know all these deployments and hundreds of combat missions and in burying my buddies in Arlington National Cemetery and you know all of these things over the years and then now you know that that basically the public opinion is being swayed right. um but the only thing we can really do from that is to take it and we got to learn from it like real quick. We got to learn right now and you got to take action. Uh, you got to be decisive. You got to be, tell the guys that are in that position. If you're at a regular seal team, you know, like team two or, or team seven, I think is where Gallagher was at the time. If you're at one of those units, you know, you're being watched, you know, and if you ever want to go to the counterterrorism unit, then you better make the right decisions or, or those decisions are not only going to come back to haunt you in that screening process, they're going to come back to haunt you when the news airs, right? And then it's going to affect the whole community. So you've got a responsibility 
as a as a leadership person, as a platoon chief, to make the right decisions, especially when you're in a combat situation, especially when you've got uh, you know fallen enemy, fallen friendly forces around. You've that is when you absolutely have got to make the right choice. Right. Right. So can we talk about um, uh, what rank you finished up as? Yeah, sure. So I so I uh, so I was a long time E5. Uh, I was having trouble getting promoted to E6. Unfortunately, <laughs> this this was in the 90s. So I I checked into SEAL Team 2 as an E5 and I checked out of SEAL Team 2 as an E5 five years later. Uh, so it, it's not my uh the highlight of my career, but it's just a reality. It was tough. So I had to take, uh, since I was an electronics technician, I had to take advancement exams, regular Navy advancement exams as an electronics technician. So here I am a SEAL at SEAL Team 2, and I'm like, and I'm, and I'm taking uh, an advancement exam on transistor theory. You know, mm. it, it, was, it was crazy. So, you, you know, you, you, you crunch and crunch and tr- crunch and study, but you're not working in that in that field. So it was tough. And this right. is kind of the basis of why they created the, the seal operator, uh, designator. Um, so then it, then it became the guys could get tested on what it is they're supposed to know, uh, right. for the, which so makes a lot more sense. It totally does. It totally does. So I checked into, uh, the, uh, the special mission unit made that I had just made E six. So when I went through that selection and training program, I was an E six, that was 2000, 2001, 9-11 happens, and, and within two weeks, I was sitting on the aircraft carrier off the coast of Afghanistan, so I, I, we, were, we were right over soon after it happened, and then that was it, and, and the thing is, is like, when you're, when you're an operator with one of the, the tier one organizations, and you stay busy, and you deploy, then you now become super competitive and able to advance quickly. So the first time I was up for chief, uh, E seven, that was in 2002. I was, I was back in Afghanistan in 2002 as, uh, as a, uh, bodyguard for, uh, president Karzai for a while. And that's where I made, uh, uh, chief at the time. And then, and then everything else was, it just fell in line. You know, I, I stayed deployed. I, I stayed, uh, I kept getting on the C-17s, going over to the strike forces, and um, and then I made E-8, was a team leader, assault team leader for several deployments, made troop master chief as an E-9, made several more deployments, strike forces, and then after that I was, I decided I wanted to finally do some some training stuff and try to impact some of the younger, younger guys that I'd say after 22 years in and I applied for a Navy Chief Warrant Officer program and was accepted to that and commissioned in 2012, January 2012. So you finished as a Chief Warrant Officer? That's exactly it, yep. Awesome. Okay, so you served uh, as an operator, uh, you know, during the height of the wars. Um, All of that was in special missions, you know, for your deployments and stuff like that. Uh, something that does occur within special operations and particularly within special missions is exchange programs. So, for example, I know a guy who was 
and operated with the British Special Boat Service. And for people who don't know, that's uh, basically their version of the Navy SEALs. And he came over to the States and joined a, a counterterrorism squadron on the Navy side for multiple combat rotations. Um, can you talk about your time running with a different uh, organization? Yeah, for sure. So, so at the, uh, at the, in the, t at the uh, SEAL Team 2 level, before you go to the counterterrorism realm, you, you, you're working with other units that are basically you work with foreign units that are kind of matched at your level right so you're not gonna when i was a team too i never got to work with the the sas guys or these other the, the ct guys you don't you don't really get exposure to that world until you until you make the leap and you do it yourself so my time in the 90s was all uh you know foreign units all, all in europe and gaining exposure to them, looking at how they live, how do they, uh, how do they train? What do they do that's different than you are? Basically kind of, can you learn anything from them? Can you take anything that they do and apply it to what you do to make you better? And now fast forward to 2000 and beyond, as soon as you, as soon as you step foot into the, into the CT realm, now you're, the world changes. Not only are there more expectations for you, but you're, you're offered different opportunities. And those opportunities are, working with units like the guys at Sterling Lines, at, you know, the 22 SES guys, the guys in, in pool, SBS, Australian SES guys. So you're, you're now able to, to work and be around career counterterrorism folks where there's a massive opportunity for learning, massive opportunity for engagement. And, and it's you know, what you do with it as an individual is up to you, of course. And I, but I always tried to, you know, pick out the folks that you could learn the most from, ask them what their experiences are. How did they, how did they take down this particular target? How did they execute this surveillance operation? You know, how did they jump in, you know, parachute in and do this or, you know, those kind of things. So it, fantastic experiences. I've, I've got a lot of respect for those folks in those organizations. And, you know, when you, when you set foot in their compounds, you, they do a very good job of branding. You know, the first time I went to the SAS compound in, Her in uh, Hereford, I went to the, uh, their uh, officer's mess and, you know, they were, we, we ate lunch there and, and it's a fantastic place. It's, it's filled with pictures and memorabilia and, knives and swords and guns hanging on the wall and like i mean it's it's the sas it's everything you would expect out of the sas officers mess right it's right. got there's, there's like you know you know this, it's just a fantastic place and it's it they've done a, such a great job of branding it um and showing how much they believe in the unit and they and and then you you know i go and get a cup of coffee and the the uh, uh sergeant major's walking us around and and we're like you know, I'm like, yeah, I'll take a cup of coffee, of course, because, you know, they, they're, they're always doing the coffee and tea stuff, which was worked in my favor because I drink a lot of coffee. Right. Um, but the guy gives me a, a, he gives me like his cup. So all their coffee cups have the SAS emblem on it. And I've got it actually sitting here in my in my office on the shelf. Uh, it's got the SAS emblem on it. And and I'm like, man, you guys do a fantastic job of branding. Like here, here I am. I'm a I'm a USCT guy, and I feel like joining the damn SAS. <laughs> you know, I'm like this is this is 
just unbelievable. So anyway, those that's one of the key examples of like experiences where then you go home and you look at your own brand and you say, okay, what can we do better? Uh, what did I learn from the SAS about what it feels like to be an SAS trooper, like in that compound? And what can I bring back to base, to maybe either build camaraderie or help the culture or you know, build that internal brand so that, so that people come to, to us and they say the same thing, right? That's what you want everybody to say. Right. I, um, I recently had a guy on, he was a sniper with the Canadian tier one unit. And, yep. um, over the last, you know, 19, 20 years, they actually have some of the, the longest sniper kill shots in, in recorded history. And, yep. And and that's from their special operations side and from their infantry side. And I just asked him, you know, as he was someone who served in a sniper troop, you know, what is it that guys are doing, you know, without revealing anything too crazy? What is it that guys are doing that are allowing for these type of successes? And what he attributed it to was just being able to cross train with different units and, um, you know, cross-training with Delta, cross-training with the SEALs, cross-training with the SAS. And um, he said just a culmination of all that training and um, different lessons learned on the battlefield is what he believes led to uh, all these record sniper shots. That's exactly it. You know, in, in my, you know, I was fortunate to spend a, uh, uh, you know, spend a, a year with the Delta guys in, in 2005 in Iraq. And, and those guys are, again, they're, you know, patriots warriors you know near and dear to my heart same as the guys at my you know my own uh, organization you know all these guys that do this stuff you know they they do it selflessly they get up in the morning they drive into that into that compound you know they spend all day on the range or in the shoot house and and honing their skills and they're and they're doing it for not a lot of money you know right. these these guys are not making they're not making bank as, as some people will, will refer to it. You know, they've got families to feed, they've got kids and child in, 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 uh, in schools and you know, all the, they, they've got families. They're just in, you know, in that context, you're like everybody else, but they do it for, for different reasons. And they're supremely dedicated to it. And I, you know, the, my much respect for all the counterterrorism folks that, uh, continue to, continue to operate and do that stuff on a, on a daily basis. And the, and the guys, the Delta guys specifically, that was a great opportunity that I had. I mean, I, you know, I learned a lot when I, in the time that I spent with those guys and, you know, I remember just getting my notebook out and like, you know, the, the troop sergeant major that I had at the time uh, that I was working for, basically, you know, when you're around someone that's, that's, that's an expert, right? You know, when you're around someone that's got, you know, the, the 10,000 hours of doing something. And, and he was definitely one of those guys. I mean, this is, this is one of those guys that you're like, everything he says, like, it just makes sense. You know, it's, uh, and, and it, it ends up being like, you end up sitting there looking at yourself like, man, like how in the, how does this, how does everything this guy say make sense? Like, right. am I, like, am I an idiot or what? And, but it's a it's a learning environment, and and it enabled me to learn and to see how it how he organized his troop, how he organized the mission planning, the assault tactics, the you know the the prosecuting of targets, the 
everything that goes into that and, and, and how do you do it efficiently? And, and I took a lot of notes and, and when I came back to, to my unit and for my next deployment in Afghanistan in 2006, basically it gave me the opportunity to take the good things that, that I was, we were doing as a, as an organic unit at the time. And for me to see the, the good things that they were doing and put those two things together. And it's, it's one of those opportunities that if you don't take advantage of it, you're, you're a fool. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to, to have that chance. And I, and I, and I jumped at it and it, and it really helped me to build a, you know, build and create a strike force tactics as a troop chief that I could, I could stay busy, stay active, kind of use principles from both organizations to create something that's truly effective. Yeah, during that time in Iraq, I mean, Iraq was pretty bad during those years. Um, and I know particularly uh, Delta, uh, Delta was working alongside the SAS and, and they were doing a lot of, um, you know, hitting targets and stuff like that. And there was a period, I, I think it, I don't remember if it started in 05, 06, 07, um, where they were losing a couple of guys. And I think it was getting pretty bad for them because uh, yeah. it was such a dangerous environment. Yeah. Yeah. In 2000, yeah, certainly. Definitely. It was 2005 was when, was when I went over with the, as, as part of one of the assault troops. And absolutely. I mean, it was the deployment. You know, I remember getting off the, the C-17 landed at the airfield out in the desert and you know here we were i mean it, and it starts from you know you 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 leave the united states you stop and stop in germany so the the c17 can be refueled you c17 takes off and now your next stop is your next stop is you're in the zone you know you're either you're 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 deployed you're in afghanistan or iraq or one of these other places and and uh you know the go flying into iraq at that time in 2005 you know the they turn the, you know, they kill the lights inside the C-17. The red lights come on. You know, the air crew guys are putting on their Kevlar vests and all this stuff. So it's wow. like, it, yeah, it lets you know that, like, okay, the, you know, it's it's on here pretty soon. We're we're going in, and then the plane has to make kind of a, you know, a difference. A not, I'll call it a non-traditional approach to to keep the visibility down so that into from anybody from taking shots at it. So the you know the airplane lands and you know the, you know the things uh, it's the middle of the night this thing you know the, the ramp opens up it's hot you know as soon as the ramp opens up you can feel the it's like somebody's hitting you in the face with a hair dryer you know you get this this dry Iraqi desert heat hitting you in the face and and you're like okay sweet I guess I'm here right <laughs> and uh, there's a there's a buddy of mine standing on the right outside the ramp. He was he was leaving, so he's leaving on his deployment from you know three or whatever how many, many months over there where they were taking some casualties. Then I see him, and uh, basically there's a the new the group of guys I was with were coming off the bird, we're there to start, and there's a group of guys waiting to get on the ramp, and they're leaving on that C-17 that we're on. Right, that's kind of how it works. So. So the guys that were relieving, they're going home, and uh, and these guys, they just had that look, you know, they just had that look like, you know, they were like, it's it's been busy, you know, it's there's been some crazy things that have gone on, and I and I see this this buddy of mine, and I and I walk up to him, you know, give him the the standard, uh, 
you know, standard man hug on the, on the ramp of a C-17, asked him how he was doing. And, and he looked at me, he's like, I'm doing good now because I'm leaving. Good luck, brother. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. You know, that's the, that's the interaction with like, you know, good friends. You're just like, man, he, you know, like that guy, I I consider that guy to be a a pretty tough dude. And he just told me good luck. Like, uh, I'm I'm not sure I feel good about that. Right. You know, but that, you know, that was it. That was 2005 for sure. And then, and then we were out, I mean, you know, we, you, you take all your gear over to wherever, wherever you're staying, you unpack your stuff, you put your assault gear up, get your guns out, load everything up, you know, put water in your stuff, put, you know, get everything, new batteries, new this, you know, get everything set. And then, and then you're on, that's it. You're ready to go. And I think we were out the next night, you know, so it's interesting to think of in the, in the CT world is that's how fast it can spool up. I mean, literally you can be, you can be in the United States eating dinner, you know, the night before you're getting deployed. And then 36 to 48 hours later, you are on target. So was that your first time in Iraq? That wasn't, no, my first time I went over, I guess it was in 2003. I was doing a, uh, another protection detail thing for, uh, dignitaries so we those are some of the the uh the one-off missions that that you also get assigned to do you get you get assigned to do sometimes different you know more sensitive things you get assigned to do dignitary protection you get assigned to uh you know conduct tasks that are more specific in nature and shorter instead of what i would say their traditional strike force deployments were at the time so i had done one of those in 2003 but it was only a, a couple of weeks long and it wasn't a it wasn't a direct combat role. So my first time in, I'd say, you know, in the direct combat environment in Iraq would have been in summer 2005 with the Army guys. And would you say that the the environments in Afghanistan and Iraq, were they like completely different as far as, you know, how you're approaching situations and the combat and stuff like that? Well, so that's an interesting question, John. Yeah, it's so in 2000. 2002, 2003, things were in, in Afghanistan. Things were kind of slow. We were, you know, basically we were just we were building our tactics. We were we were learning. You know, we were we were adjusting to what the enemy was doing, and we were learning how. Okay, how how are we going to be successful in this environment? How are we going to be successful in the mountains in Afghanistan, riding on helicopters that you can hear from miles away as they're coming? You know. And and so we did. We adjusted to it. And then 2004, the things that we came up with, the new tactics, the procedures that were developed, they worked and they worked fantastically. And they continue to work today. So that's when we started to get busy was, the, I'd say, the end of 2004 and then now 2005 and six and, and beyond in Afghanistan after that. But up until then, it was it was kind of slow. So. Fortunately for me, when I went to Iraq in 2005, we were, I, I had done some good, some really great operations in Afghanistan up until that point. So it, it wasn't like a, you know, it was pretty much the same thing we were doing. So it wasn't that big of a learning curve. It was more like, get your stuff on, get on the helicopter and let's go. So in that sense, it was, it was more fluid. 
like a like a quicker quicker type of pace yeah exactly yeah not not as not as steep of a learning curve so it was we were able to you know my team and i were able to um you know join those guys and just say okay how do you and we, we were fortunate we had a a train-up period with them before too so we were you know we were training with them before deploying so that gives you the opportunity to make sure that you're on the same sheet of music for tactics which is extremely extremely important i mean that's where the that's the focus of you talk about the difference in what's the difference in buds selection versus like the counterterrorism environment right like so so buds i wasn't necessarily being selected for you know my intelligence capability and the ability to to do target identification you know to do to know where the friendlies are at all times on the battlefield to you know to make those decisions in a split second and when you get to the counterterrorism environment that's what you're those are things that you know among many that you're judged on decision making you know your ability to solve the complex problems and do it very very quickly and uh and so that's the that's the i'd say the the, the big change is you're now looking at guys that, you know, they have to know, especially in a training environment that is the most sterile, easiest environment that you could be in, you know, as hard as we try to make it, it's still nothing like the combat environment. Um, you just, you just simply can't recreate it. You know, so when you're entering rooms and you're doing training and you're being selected and you're giving guys a, a you know, six rules they've got to follow, You've got to follow every one of these rules perfectly, you know, and if you mess it up, then this might not be the place for you. And once you learn these six rules, we're going to give you six more. And then you got to do these and you got to do the other ones, too. You know, so you keep building on these things, these building blocks where where you're assessing people and making sure that, you know, they can they can keep up. They can keep up academically and they can keep up on a performance level. And if they can't, then they're they'll you know, they'll, they'll go somewhere else, but that's the, that's the basis of it. And it's such a, uh, it's such a neat experience because then you can, you just, you just grow so much further as, you know, as a quote operator, you become a more professionalized person to where you can, you can now operate in an environment where you have to be in assault gear on a helicopter. You can operate in an, an environment where you're wearing a suit and you're, in Washington DC and you're meeting with senior government officials, you know, these kind of things, the kind of things that are expected of you when you get to that, that next step, when you're considered a, a professional operational person. Where were you on September 11th? Do you remember? Absolutely. So that's one of those things. It's funny when you think back to when people describe, uh, John F. Kennedy assassination that were alive back then, they all say that they remember exactly where they were. And it's totally true. Right. I'm old enough to remember exactly where I was when Reagan was shot and old and then of course for uh, September 11th. So September 11th, I was driving, I was, I was home on the alert cycle. So we, this is back when we were, Whenever we're local, you have to stand in alert cycle. So there's always, at any given time, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, there are our most experienced, seasoned combat operators that are on alert to go anywhere in the world and do things that they need to do. And that's 
that's a that's that's a persistent requirement. That's that's that'll always be the case, and that's kind of a neat and very unique thing for being assigned to those units. So I was on the uh, alert cycle at the time, went and I was listening to the radio on the way, and I heard that there was a you know airplane. You know they said they thought it was a small airplane. I, I heard like Cessna or something like this that struck a building in New York City. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really crazy. Like some some airplane hit a hit a building. And then I get to the I get to the unit, right? I get to the command. And then I go into the team room. So now I'm in one of the in, in one of the squadron team rooms at the organization. And we've got a big we had a big TV at the time that was like in the corner. We it was on, you know, the, it was on the local news. And that's when I saw the the first tower, like with the smoke coming out of it and everything. And in that team, I was in the team room when the second one hit, when the second airplane hit. So, I mean, all of us were, you know, you got the, you got the whole, the whole, the squadron was in there watching this. So you can imagine the dynamic. So all of us are sitting there and we're just like, oh, something's going to change, right? Something right. is getting, getting ready. Our lives are getting ready to change like right now. And they, and they did. And they, and they, and it happened almost you know, almost instantly, like I said, it was, you know, September 11th happened. And then we immediately went out and started checking our bags. I mean, it was, it was literally that quick. It was that day. Uh, so we started pulling our assault bags down, checking our, you know, checking all the stuff, cleaning the weapons, making sure that all the, you know, all your magazines are ready to load and, and all these kind of things. And, it was a it was a massive process, but it was it, it was near immediate, and we got ready, and we were we were you know overseas within a couple of weeks. And did you guys were you on that sort of first rotation into Afghanistan? So we did a couple of uh, we off of, we were, I was on an aircraft carrier, and we did a few specialized I'll say specialized things off of the aircraft carrier into Afghanistan. October, I guess it would be October, November, 2001. So, yeah, so we, so I, we, we did some things in there for sure. And then, uh, and then we left, we, I was, that was probably a couple of months long, that deployment, two and a half months, maybe. And then back, back to the U S uh, and then 2002, uh, 2002 comes along uh, we still had guys. We, we, you know, guys came over, uh, relieved us, stayed there, and then I'd say probably June or so, something like that. Maybe June or July is when I got. I was recalled and actually told I was going to Afghanistan in like two days to go be a bodyguard for Karzai. So I had I had like zero notice for that one too. So you, how many years total were you in the Navy, and then how many years were you a SEAL? So 27 total, and then uh, 20, I guess about 22 total as a SEAL. Okay, and that includes the uh, SEAL Team 2 plus counterterrorism. Yep, exactly. And can you talk about just some of the specialties and leadership roles you've had throughout your time in the teams? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, as a as a person who's, you know, when you when you you get the opportunity to be at a, at a SEAL team, you've got to start finding people who you want to emulate. You know, I think that's natural progression. 
you know, you look toward your, your platoon chiefs at the time and, and other senior folks and you figure out who, who, who is it that knows what they're talking about. And you know, when, you know, everybody knows when they meet that person and they're like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. So that's what I would do. And in my, I had a platoon chief at, uh, at team two that was an amazing guy. I mean, he was, he was just, he was that expert that everybody wanted to be. And again, like my experience with the Delta guys, with the troop sergeant major there, I just started, I just started watching and, and taking notes. And so I learned a lot of things from him. I wasn't in a leadership position at, at, at team two. And then I went to the special mission organization and then I wasn't in a leadership position there until I was made a team leader in 2004. So that was the first real, real, like I'd say leadership test for me. So 2004, 2005, 2006, those are the, those are the three years that I was a, uh, an assault team leader. Those again, there during that period, uh, I had another guy that, that I observed and he was one of the guys in charge of us on the, uh, on the squadron. And I just, I just enjoyed watching him, watching him work and how he did it. I enjoyed, uh, you know, listening to how he communicated with people, you know, how he was able to connect the dots and, and taking on board some of his lessons and practices and just make them, make them my own, maybe make them a little, little unique. And, uh, so from there, then making it to the troop chief level, that's a, that's a much different ball game. You know, now you're talking about, now you're the senior enlisted guy and you've got, you know, 40 folks, 40 folks on the ground with you in Afghanistan, you know, and that's, uh, uh, that, there's a lot of responsibility there. Of course, you, you've got to make the right decisions and you got to make them for the right reasons. You know, there's, I had uh, seal assaulters with me. I had, you know, other we, we I'd say, uh, supporting folks who are near and dear to my heart as well. Like the air force PJs. I love those guys. The combat controllers, those guys are, those guys are amazing. And then the and then the Rangers, you know, we we never went anywhere without having a a couple of squads of guys uh, with us on the on the helos. And those, you know, the the seventy fifth Ranger Regiment guys are in, they're invaluable. I mean, you you know, you worth worth their weight in gold and more for sure. Um, so over the years, um, throughout the the global war on terror, and I think particularly in Afghanistan, uh, the Ranger Regiment and the um, counterterrorism uh, side of the house at the SEAL teams developed a close relationship from what I understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you think is, uh, uh, you think of all the things that are forged in, you know, forged in combat and, and relationships is one of them. And, you know, as a person in a leadership position, that's your opportunity to, to make that relationship what it is you want. You know, if you, if you're, if you don't like another organization just for the sake of not liking the organization, well, then I, I feel sorry for you. Then you're, you're never going to grow. You know, you're never, you're never going to allow yourself to go past, go beyond a certain point. But you know, when I, when I began working with the Rangers, you know, this, are they, are they different than we are? Well, yeah, of course they are. They're, they're younger guys. They're, you know, they went on a different path than I did. They joined the army. I joined the Navy. You know, so there's there's differences from day one. Um, but this, the thing that's that's common about the two organizations is that that flag on the sleeve is the same. And that's that's what 
people have to remember. You're, you know, you're there for the same reasons. Is the training different? Yeah, the training is different, sure. But I loved working with those guys. You know, I loved having the, the young guys. I mean, you know, they're super hungry. They're always ready to go. They're super motivated. And the other thing is, too, is it keeps you honest working with these other units. You know, folks ask me about the relationship between us and the guys at Delta. And I tell them, I, it's, you, it's, it's a competition, of course, but you need that. You know, if, if we didn't have that competition, you know, now you got guys just running amok. You know, you know you're not going to know what you're going to get. So it's good. It's healthy competition. And it keeps you honest. It keeps you prepared and it keeps you making the right decisions for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, the, the, any, anywhere I would go, any operation that I went on as far as a strike force goes in Afghanistan, I always took the ranges with me every single time. I mean, I wasn't going to go out without them. Why would you not take, uh, eight to 10 or 12 guys that are just armed to the teeth with, you know, it's a, why would you not take yeah. those guys with you? You know what I mean? Uh, so as a, a troop chief, um, and is that the position, uh, is that the highest senior enlisted position at that organization, a troop chief? No, 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 it's not. There's a, there's a couple more after that. And I was, uh, I was at, so I was at 22 years at the time, 22 years active duty. And the commissioning program that I was taking a look at, basically, the the year that I applied for it was the only year I could apply for it because after that I was going to be I was going to be over the window, uh, so I'd I'd have too too much service in to apply. So in two thousand and I guess it was two thousand and ten when I applied, it's the only year that I was eligible for it. Um, and I said, okay, I got I got a choice to make. I can I can stay and do a couple of different senior enlisted positions or I can apply for a commission and go run the selection and training division. That was my, that was my goal. And, uh, so yeah, I just made, I was in Afghanistan actually when I made the decision, uh, I was sitting there and it in the strike force and, you know, you can, you can imagine you're in this, it's basically a tent. It's kind of a, a large tent structure with plywood, you know, plywood furniture made by the, by the CBs that are, you know, God bless those guys. Those guys are amazing. Plywood furniture, office chairs, and a computer. And then, and then, and then these big, you know, like, like a half a dozen enormous plasma screens for all the stuff that you're watching that's going on in the battlefield. And, uh, and I was sitting in there and I'm, I'm thinking, well, I've got to make my career decision here because the applications for the chief warrant officer program are, are due in like a month or whatever. And, and then I, I was like, I'm going to apply for it. And that was it. That was the decision. And, and luckily it worked out in my favor because then I, and then, and I think two years after that, I was actually running the selection and training section, which was, that was a, a fantastic experience. I really enjoyed doing that stuff too. And how long were you doing that before you retired? So three years. So I was able to do that for three years. Put some of uh, put some of the special mission guys through the uh, the training programs that we have there. Again, it's it's amazing being around. You're around hungry guys that are there. You know they want to be there. They want to be part of the organization. It's just it's it's just it's addicting, right? You're around these guys that are just like they're so mo. They're you. 
you know, they, they, when I was there, that was, that was me in 2000, you know, it's like, it's, it's just such a nice thing. I get why people want to be in like educator positions or teachers or coaches or these kind of things, because the people that you're around, they're just, uh, they got so much life in them. You know, they got, they got such a path in front of them and they're just like, they're motivated. And a lot of times that path is similar to what you had. So you see, you see a lot of yourself in these other folks. And that's a, that's, that's a pretty cool thing. So then, uh, yeah, so that was my, my last like hurrah, if you will. So it was only three years in the, in the training environment but i was able to say that i at least did some of it um after doing the the 10 years of uh operational stuff that i that i absolutely loved of course yeah a, a friend of mine and he's one of the guys that uh, sort of helped me get started with the podcasting and stuff like that and um he served for i think 22 years um all army special operations and special forces and then he went up to counterterrorism for a little bit yeah went, went back to special forces and um he, I mean, obviously it's it's a business because he runs a training business, but he talks about uh, now being able to teach and train people and, and all kind of things uh, has really helped him in his transition process out of the military. Right, right. Yeah, that totally, you know, that totally makes sense, John. It's, it, it's, uh, I see a lot of guys that do that. I see a lot of guys that um, they're looking for that. You know, what can they, uh, when they make that leap, uh, what are the things that they can do that not only that help them maintain their sanity, but also the things that where they can, they can feel as though they're still contributing to the mission. Right. Absolutely. Um, so you, after you've done your three years, um, at the training command, uh, you then retire and get out the Navy. Yeah. So it was, uh, so here I am like, you know, 27 year guy trying to figure out what the heck it is I'm going to do. And this is a, you know, this, this is the transition challenge that a lot of folks face, you know, every, every day, a lot of, a lot of people getting out of the military and you're sitting here and you're like, man, here I was running strike forces and flying on 47s and Blackhawks and little birds and jumping out of airplanes at 25,000 feet in Afghanistan. And, and now you're and you're sitting here, you know, you're, you're in your, house or whatever and you're like okay wow what uh what what am i gonna do <laughs> and it's uh it's a it's an eye-opening experience you know and, and how you handle those experiences how the people handle those those experiences those are determining factors as to whether they're gonna do it and be healthy about it or whether they're gonna do it and they're gonna have a hard time and and it's gonna be potentially an, an unhealthy situation for them so what well, i so i'm basically I looked towards education. I, I said, all right, I'm, I'm getting out of the military. I've been, my brain is basically addicted to adrenaline and cortisol from being under so much stress, such high periods of stress for short periods of time, you know, getting, running off the, you know, the helicopters coming in from the time. If I, if I could like I'm trying to paint paint the picture, so you're like you're sitting on one of these helicopters in 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 you know Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever, and you're sitting like you know you're in the door of the sixty, or you're sitting in the forty seven, or you're sitting outside on the on the pod of the little bird, and you get these we'd get these time hacks from the uh, from the air crew from the pilots, and so they give you one at like it's uh, like six minutes, so they tell you you know they yell it over the over the thing the guys are you know six minute call. 
And when that six minute call comes, you're like, okay, all right, I get, you know, we're, we're going, we're going to be there and, uh, we're going to be there in six minutes guaranteed. Uh, so, and then it, and then it gets a little bit closer. Right. And then they give you three minutes, like, okay, three minutes. So now three minutes, three minute call comes. Now you start to get, you can feel it. You start to get amped up. I mean, this, you could be landing, uh, you know, right outside of a compound, right outside of a, of a house, a structure and taking fire upon infill. I mean, as soon as that, as soon as that bird's coming down, you can hear the, you know, you can hear your guys shooting. You can hear, you know, you know, rounds cracking right past you. So it's, it's on from the, from the time that bird sets down. So you can imagine what that does to your, your adrenaline levels. Right. So, and so you're off of that bird, you know, the, the, the dust cloud, the brownout happens, the dust cloud comes out, you know, your guns up, you're, you're running as fast as you can with all this weight on to get out of that, to get out of that dust cloud so that you can see, cause you can't see anything when you're in it. Um, there's helicopters landing all around. You're, you're trying to pick out where the birds are and where the target building is and, and you know, where the bad guys are and all this stuff. So you're trying to connect all these, all these dots. Um, and in doing that, the, the stress hormones are just, you know, they're obviously flooding into your body, you know, you're flooding into your brain. Um, and then, then you come down off of that and you get now fast forward, like 90 minutes, two hours later, now you're getting back on a helicopter, you're flying back to the base. Right. And then, and then two or three hours after that, you're sitting there eating breakfast with your buddy in the chow hall. And it's a, like, you just imagine that lifestyle and then imagine doing that for years. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of crazy and you can see how, uh, you know, the, the type of people that it takes to do that kind of a job and do it, uh, for a sustained amount of time. Um, so that's, that's the, basically the, what I needed to replace. That's what the, right. that's right. what, that's what these guys need to replace. Like, what are you going to do? You can't go from doing that to doing nothing. Um, if you go from doing that to doing nothing, then I've seen so many guys that turned to, they turned to alcohol, they turned to, I mean, a variety of things to basically numb their brains because they've cut it, they've cut this, they've cut it off. Um, and it's like, what are they going to do? So my, my stress was school. Um, so I applied to business schools, uh, and I, I, we were, I was living up in uh, Washington DC at the time. And, uh, and I went to a George Mason University in Arlington. I got into their MBA program, and I was like, "I got to do this. I got to. I got to do something where I feel uncomfortable, where I feel because I I wanted to go to school. I wanted to get the education, but I I kind of also knew that I needed it too for for other aspects. Um, so here I was, in, you know, 27 year counterterrorism guy, and I'm sitting in the classroom up in Arlington, Virginia, and that was probably the most uncomfortable I think I've ever been in my life. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it was unbelievable. You're like, you're sitting here thinking like, okay, here you are, this, this like tough guy from, with all this combat experience and whatever. Now you're in a classroom. Um, you know, you're not in your uniform anymore. You're not, you're not, you're not wearing your call sign patch anymore. You're not wearing your squadron patch anymore. You're sitting there just like everybody else with your, with your laptop open, ready to learn. You know, and that's, uh, that, that was a, a crazy environment for me because I was like, man, this is like, you know, here I've, I've, I've got to learn how to, um, to, to interact and to, to be with these other folks and learn from them when I can learn from them and help them when I can help them. Um, 
and in the military units, you know, you're around, especially in the squadron, right? You're around, you're, everyone you're around is like you. And then you get out of the military, especially if you go to business school. Now, 99% of the people are not like you <laughs> in, in that, in that environment. Uh, and so you gotta, you gotta learn how to leverage that. And, and it, and it was, a that was a great two year experience for me because it provided a lot of stress. It provided a lot of academic growth, uh, a lot of new friendships with folks that were outside of my typical career path. Um, and it, it was, it was a great experience. I really loved it. So you did your schooling, um, and then had you already created your company? So you, you done, you done your schooling, you have a company and then you're also working on a foundation. Um, which came yep. first, the company? Yep. So, yeah. So when I was in business school, I wanted to, I was already having ideas of like entrepreneurship. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to like for, to support my family? Right. What are you going to do to make money when you're out of school? Um, so I started a company, uh, called, uh, uh, Gethin group back in when I was, when I was in my first year of, uh, the MBA program. Um, so then I, I started working on stuff uh, for that. What I wanted to do was create a, a company that does offers assessments, like basically pre-hiring assessments to help veterans uh, and, and other people to debate in, in the job application process, you know, through the use of behavioral science tools. Uh, and so, and that's been a, I've been working on that for a couple of years now and I've been lucky to have some, some folks involved in it that are, that are really talented. Um, Towards the end of my MBA program, I still had some benefits left over on the GI Bill. I had about 14 months left, so uh, I looked at other master's programs, and I know as crazy as it sounds, I uh, uh, I applied for a second master's, and this was in uh, finance and investment risk at uh, New York University, uh, up at the, at the Stern School uh, there in the city. So I got into that program, fortunately, um, and then I spent the next year uh, with NYU uh, in their in their cohort, and that was taught between Abu Dhabi. Uh, there's an NYU comp- campus in Abu Dhabi. There's a Amsterdam Institute of Finance, and in New York. So that was a, that was a fantastic program. It was amazing uh, learning learning opportunity there too. So all the while, while I'm doing the school stuff, I'm continuing to think about okay, what can I do for what can I do for business? What can I do in the in the realm of entrepreneurship? So the co- the company is a an assessment services company. So like somebody getting out of the military can can go on there they can take a standardized assessment and they can get feedback from an actual an actual uh, psychologist a phd level person b- before they start the hiring process for a company because all these companies out there now are using pre-hire assessments to screen their employees i mean any any of these companies that you're trying to get into bank of america capital one any of these finance firms, all these top consulting agencies, if you apply for a job there, they're going to send you a link and it's going to say, you know, welcome to the job process. Here's your first assessment you got to take. And you're not going to get any feedback from it. You're either going to get an interview or you're not. So with the way I was looking at it was, okay, why don't we create a system where, you know, folks can go on and they can, they can take a standardized assessment. They can get feedback and they can go into that process armed with a lot more knowledge about themselves than they currently have. So that's a that's a 
that's a pretty neat and pretty u- unique thing. Um, the foundation aspect of it was, uh, so five years ago in 2015, uh, my brother-in-law was, uh, he was a Marine Raider. Uh, he was killed in, uh, in Florida in a helicopter crash. And, uh, you know, after that incident, I really started to think about, okay, what can we do to, you know, when you talk about, you talk about guys and you tell guys, you know, you always want to try to live your life and leave behind a legacy. Don't just try to be a legend. And, you know, in, in that context, uh, you know, Tom was, he was just, he was a, he was just an amazing guy. He's just a, just one of these guys you're around and you're like, you're like, this is, this is like the quintessential, you know, Marine Raider for, for, for his, for his job. I mean, he was just, he was on all the time. You know, he just knew what he was talking about. He was professional. He was an expert and he was, and he was young when he, when he was, when he was take, taken away, like, you know, like, like so many other guys. So I started thinking, okay, what can we do to, what can we do to, to, to not only give back and kind of continue his legacy, but you know, offer some things to some, some families in the name of these guys who have given everything, uh, to help them with, uh, education costs, uh, you know, help guys with education costs that are getting out of the military and they're, they're looking for what it is they're going to do and they need something in their life and they need to expand, but they've given their GI bill benefits to their kids. And so now they don't have anything to, to go to school because they've, they've done the noble thing by giving it to their kids. Um, what about the, the special needs kids that are they're in programs that are not, some of them aren't covered by insurance. You know, I just spoke with a gold star family a few weeks ago and, and she's got her son in this, uh, it's called brain balance. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, this kind of, it's a new treatment method that they're trying to, to get kids back on track who might be having, you know, learning issues. And, and it's, you know, and the insurance doesn't cover it, you know? Um, so, you know, so here, there's a lot of these stories like that out there. So that's the basis of the foundation is how can, how can I take my experience that I have from all those years in special operations and how can I now leverage that not only for the good of a company that I'm trying to go, but also for the good of a found for the good of the foundation where we're going to try to, you know, issue out scholarships and help some, kids and kind of perpetuate that, you know, perpetuate all those academic goals, all those, you know, the, the idea behind being involved in philanthropy and, um, in, in creating that environment where, where a kid gets a check in in his hand and he's like, Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. I just got, I just got given money by these guys that are these former operators and they're looking out for me and they care about me. And, and now when that kid's an adult, he's going to do the same thing. So it's, it's that whole pay it forward thing. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. And, um, you know, sorry for your loss. I remember when that happened, uh, it was a helicopter crash, right? Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a Hawk that went down in Florida. We were, um, we were in the house and it was in the morning and, uh, it was crazy. You know, my wife's like, she like woke me up. It's like first thing in the morning. And she, she like got up for some reason, like turned the news on. And she's like, there's a helicopter that, that's like, cr- or missing in Florida. 
and I was like, you know, I was like kind of groggy waking up and I was like, Oh really? It was like, but like, what's, what's, what's the deal? And she thought it was that they first said it was a 64, which is an, you know, is an Apache. So, and then she said that her, you know, that, that Tom was down. She goes, Hey, Tom's down there training with his guys. He's in Florida. And, and I, and I said, well, it's a, if it's a 64, then it's, they're, they're not going to be on that because it's an Apache. But uh, but well, let's turn the news on, see what the what the heck's going on. Uh, so I turn the turn the news on, and then as soon as I turn the news on, they're like Blackhawk, and I'm and that's you know you get that it's like you just get the chills thinking about it, um, where you're watching the news, you know the the all the media stuff that's so readily available. They got a news crew right there in Florida, and they're like, yeah, there's a there was a, you know. 11 people on board the aircraft, which means that they had obviously people in the back. And that's when it was just like, that was just like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, like basically the family members are like, now they're, now they're calling the cell phones of those guys, right. Trying to figure out who was on which aircraft. So there were two helicopters that left, left the pad that night. They were going to put the guys in, cast them into the water and it was foggy, and the and, uh, fog had come in, and uh, and the, basically the helicopters took off. The first bird entered the entered the fog off the water, and the, the second aircraft lost lost the visual of the of the first aircraft. The second aircraft turned around, set back down on the pad, and now the first aircraft is in in the fog, and the guys got disoriented. The the pilots got disoriented. And, and that was, that was it. That's, that's what brought the bird down. So, uh, all 11 of those guys died right there that night. So that was, um, the air crew and the Raiders that were in the back. That's right. So the seven, the seven Raiders, yep. And then the air crew. Yep. Yeah. I remember that, um, early, very early on, that was right around when I started my, my podcast. And early yep. on, we had some of their teammates on the podcast. So they were doing the uh, the Rucking Raiders event, where they were rucking that's right. uh, hundreds of miles uh, in their name. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They're and they're doing it. They're getting ready to do another one because they had so that same team is is uh, Tom's team was team eight two three one. That same team. Some of the guys. Uh, now fast forward. You remember when that there was a C one thirty that crashed in Mississippi? Some of the guys from that same team crashed with another aircraft and died on that C-130. Right. So it's, I mean, it's just, it's just tragic. And there's, and, and you, you take these guys, you're talking about the, the seven, uh, uh, seven Marines involved in that one, you know? So then after that, you know, we, we found out Tom was on the bird and, you know, of course, you know, your world just comes to a screeching halt. So we went down to North Carolina to be down there obviously and now you're just you know i'd been through this so many times you know with, with my guys in the past it's just a it, it it never gets it never ever gets easier it's always it's always the most difficult thing in the world that you're that you're going to deal with and uh it's just it's just even worse obviously when you're when you're much closer to it and it's a it's a you know member of the member of the family so you know we went down there now you're around all these you know now now there's now there's not just there's not just one guy's family. There's seven, right? You know, there's everybody's there. So it's 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 basically exponential. 
and uh, you know, very, very tough experience. So that's, that's when we started thinking about it and started like, okay, maybe Tom went to, uh, he went to Hargrave military Academy before he joined the Marines. So we had initially talked about creating a, a scholarship and like his, in his honor for Hargrave military Academy. And then, and then that kind of, I, you know, I was in school in New York, so I, I didn't get any movement on that. And then, uh, and then recently in, in the last few months, because I've, I've graduated from the program in, in New York, I, now I've got more time to, to do things like this so I can focus on it. So I created the foundation, you know, got the found folks to be, uh, the, the first group for the board of directors, um, created the website myself. And now I've got, you know, this, it's been around for maybe a month. So we've re- so far, the foundation has raised just over $2,000 on GoFundMe. We just received the state of Virginia corporation, you know, nonprofit tax ID number. So that is fantastic. So, um, things are moving along, uh, right now we're, I'm, I'm basically trying to I'm raising money by, uh, selling things on the, on the website. And also by trying to get the word out to when we, when we receive the, the 501 C3 status, then we can actually pursue some, some much larger donors. And then it's, it's of course tax free. So that's, that's essentially it, John. That's the, in the, the, the best thing now is I just, uh, today we just got some shirts in with, uh, right, the, I saw that. yeah, the Raider seven guys on the back. And I brought the shirts. I literally picked them up this morning and I brought the shirts back and I showed my wife the shirts and she was like, you know, you know, you can imagine, you know, she sees it. You you imagine when you see a shirt and your brother's on the back of it, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a fantastic, the, the art, the uh, shirt folks here in Virginia that I'm using local Virginia company, they did an amazing job in creating the shirts. I'm, I'm making them available on the website today and all the, you know, of course, all the, all the funds for, for the, everything that we raise is going towards the, the operator foundation right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm supporting the whole thing myself. Uh, and we hope to get this thing off the ground so we can make a, make a, a big impact, you know, come summer of 2020 and beyond. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And then, you know, initially speaking with you, and sort of learning about uh, some of the background and and why you're doing it, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, this is amazing and and something I want to support. Um, so just kind of uh, rewinding a little bit, um, talking about your company, um, you know, you you're you're helping with the screening process and stuff like that. Um, yep. My brother, he works in Wall Street. He's a finance guy, and um, yeah, yep, he. He's he's been on Wall Street for about ten years now, I think, or something like that. And yep. throughout his time there, he's worked with guys who were in the military and special ops, and um, you know, helicopter pilots and stuff like that. Coming, th- I, I think some of them were there on programs, special programs, and some of them were just guys who had uh, gone to school after they got out. Yep. And um, it's it's kind of fascinating that there's a percentage of ex-military who get into finance, and um, it is it is. I was in, um, uh, I was at One World Trade uh, last year. I think it was uh, January or February. I can't remember. And um, there was a security company there. Um, the guy who created it was at the agency for a long time. And the second 
uh, the COO yep. was a uh, sergeant major at Delta Force, and they have an office at One World Trade. And so I was there for an event with some other um, – it was an event for a, an organization that a Delta Force guy was running. And all these uh, former Delta Force guys who live in New York, they're all like Wall Street guys, like finance guys. And I, I just thought it was kind of fascinating. Like there was a bunch there. It, it but, is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, because you're – and the thing is, you, you know, so all the folks that um, – there are certain standards that you have to have to, to get into these units. And that's what a lot of folks don't know. So on the counterterrorism side, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a mold you've got to fit from when we start looking at good candidates. You know, I was the, I was the guy for three years. I interviewed every single person, uh, every single seal that wanted to come, uh, to the special mission unit. I interviewed every guy and you know, that's, that's your job when you're, when you're sitting in the, in the selection and training office and you're, you're you're in charge so you get to see what the what the standards are you get you get to see how how you know talented the folks are that you're picking and the guys that comprise these units are you know their emotional intelligence is high the the iq is high you know these are these are folks that can go into a lot of different a lot of different environments and they can be really really successful and that and that's pretty cool, you know. That's uh, and that was, you know, you you, you find things that you want to do, and you just you just want to do your best at it. You just want to knock it out of the park, you know. You just want to you want to learn something new and keep the keep the brain moving. And that's that's why I ended up doing the the business my three years in graduate school myself. And that's and and that's the whole when you talk about assessments for these guys for the our our Geffen Group opportunities. Uh, you know, so I, I, uh, these, these assessments that are out there, if the military, if the veterans aren't prepared for taking these things, it's, it's going to be an, an unfortunate learning experience for them because it's literally, you know, I, I went through the process with a uh, capital one and I think I took, let me think I took a, so I took a math assessment for capital one. I took a a reading assessment. Basically I took an SAT. I took three behavioral assessments for capital one. So five total. And these are all online. You know, these are all the, you know, they send you the link and you do them. And if you make, if you do one and the, and your results are acceptable, you do the next one. So, so I've participated in some of these and I've been, uh, also participated in some assessments that, uh, bank of bank of America does for their, for their folks. So these these companies are using them, absolutely using them. And you got to uh, the the veterans that are out there. A lot of people think that they know everything about themselves, but as you might imagine, you know sometimes we're our worst our worst enemy because we're not we see what we want to see. You know, sometimes you're not getting the whole picture when you're when people ask like what type of leader you are. Maybe you're not the best person to ask. Maybe the the person you should ask is somebody that somebody that works for you, you know. And like, what type of leader was this guy? That you, there, you might get a different answer. So, so our packages are designed to 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 help guys, to help ladies, to be the best in that environment, so that when they click apply for these jobs, that they're not worried that if they get an assessment in the, in their email box, the, 
the, the next day. They're not worried about, number one, what do those questions mean that they're asking? And more importantly, what are my answers going to indicate? You, um, you explained to me the sort of the, the story behind your, um, your logo for the Operator Foundation. Um, it's, yep. it's interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I, I wanted to get something that represented a couple of obviously very unique, uh, very unique units that are v- extremely important to me. Uh, you know, these are the organizations that uh, you know made it's effectively made me who I am today. Uh, and the the six stars represents the the Navy counterterrorism component, and then the sword represents the armies. Uh, so that's you know it's, it's a it's a joint shield, you know. That's that was the design for it. And I, um, I like the shield design because the the last squadron I was on had a you know similar had a had a was on a their emblem was on a shield, and I, the two notches at the top are one for each of the units. So that's the that's the basis behind it. So I wanted to do something specifically for guys at the two top CT units, and then when we started to discuss including the Raiders, that was a natural fit because of our, our personal experience and connection with the guys of uh, uh, the Raider 7 team. So if anyone listening wants to uh, maybe connect with you for your business, and then also if people are interested in keeping up with the Operator Foundation, whether that's donating or just following you guys on social media, yep. where's the best place for all that? Oh, that's great. Thanks, John. Yeah, so the, the website is uh, theoperatorfoundation.org. That's pretty, that's pretty simple to, to get to. There, there is one, there's another organization called Just Operator Foundation that's, a, that's an organization, uh, a tech organization down in Texas. And I've heard that they are getting a massive amount of website hits based on our name. Uh, so it's, you know, you got, you got to deal with that. I mean, the, right. you know, the, the difference is, is ours is the operator foundation.org, uh, www in front of that, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. You can, people can also type in the type that in and type by my name in, you know, Mars, Ronald Mars, something like that. It'll get to it. So on there, we've, we've created a couple buttons where people can contribute and those buttons go to a GoFundMe site that I established as soon as the 501c3 designation is in, that should be in about six weeks. Then I'll let everybody know. And then at that point, we can start issuing donors back to when the company was incorporated. So that's what people really need to know is that like, if they donate money today, it's, it's going to be tax-free when the designation comes in because it's going to date back to when the, when the paper, when the, the organization was formed when I formed it. So it's the, the formation of it for the state of Virginia is December 31st. So all the people donating in January and beyond are going to be covered once it comes in. The other thing that they can do is they can, I know that donating money is not in the, uh, you know, some people don't have that ability and I get that. Totally understand it. Got some other things people can do. You know, they can buy a shirt to, to show support and wear the, Wear the Operator Foundation logo around town and tell people what it's about and what does it mean and and tell folks about who the Raider 7 guys are on the back of that t-shirt. The pictures of the helicopters on the backs of the shirts, those are pictures that I took. So those are not, those are not designed 
you know, those are not artists renditions or anything like that. Those are, those are images that I took, uh, over the years, uh, and the, the company here in Virginia was able to, to, to screen them onto the back of the shirts and they look really neat. And then we'll, we've got, I've, I've got some other entry points lower than that for people with, uh, you know, have, you know, disposable income issues that you know, if they want to buy a coffee mug, those are going to be done next week. If they want to buy a sticker, they can buy a sticker all the way, you know, the, We've got some really cool lapel pins coming in that I had made, and we're going to save the lapel pins for basically if you donate a hundred bucks or more, you get a lapel pin. Nice. And so, yeah, so these things are these are the company in Vermont that's making the lapel pins did a really nice job. I should have those this week, actually. Awesome. And what about social media? Yep, social media. So at the Op Foundation, uh, you can find us on Twitter at that one. Uh, and then the, the other ones are all simple. The Operator Foundation uh, is on Instagram. Uh, the Operator Foundation is on uh, LinkedIn, on Facebook. We've hit them all. And I and John, this is this leads me into the uh, the just how important it is and how thankful we are for the stuff that you do, uh, up, up there in New York. I it just, I just can't even tell you how, how, how important it is for us and to have folks like you that are, have dedicated so much time and interest into the, into our communities. Uh, it's a, it's, it's just immensely important because you get guys, I, I had zero social media presence for, for all these years. I mean, we were, we were supposed to be off the grid and we were, you know, I didn't create a, LinkedIn account until I was in business school. And, uh, I had people in business school laughing because I didn't have a Facebook page, right. you know? And so you, now we're, so you're basically starting from ground zero of trying to like populate and get this message out there of, of what you is you're trying to do from both an entrepreneur standpoint and also from the, the standpoint of a nonprofit foundation and can, and this, the reach that folks like you have, uh, the programs that folks like you are running is 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 just immensely important in the community. I've heard a lot of guys tell me uh, how thankful they are, and it's it's just a it's a it's a great thing. Yeah, thank you, and and you know that's really why um, I've done it. And when I first started, some of my buddies who were active and like basically on their way out, um, you know, one of the thoughts was is like you guys have been fighting and deploying for the last 15 years, 16 years at the time. And, um, you know, for the last 10 years, I have experienced building platforms on social media and on, and on the web. So, you know, if we can combine what you guys are doing with my skill set, you know, it will help everybody out. And, um, you know, that's really one of the main reasons why I'm doing it. So. Well, so it's, it's amazing. I tell you, so you, you know, the, we, I need to get you, I got to get you the, uh, one of these operator foundation t-shirts and the and stuff up there. So you can, you need to up there in New York, you need to be wearing this, uh, wearing the shield around telling people what it's all about. Yeah, man, definitely. Definitely. And, um, you know, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking here. Um, the, the audience is going to appreciate this, especially the, um, younger generation of Americans looking to get into the service. And then particularly, uh, people who are interested in special operations um, to be able to hear from a guy with your experience is invaluable to them. Um, so, you know, I appreciate you doing this, and I also want to thank you for your service as well. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that, John.